Welcome to The Feast, a podcast where meals make history. I'm your host, Laura Carlson. Now, when I say the words road trip, what do you think of? Bad family holidays, endless hours cramped in the backseat? Or what about great music, the freedom of the open highway? Well, whether you're heading a few hours down the road or embarking on a multi-month cross-country adventure, road trips, you have to admit, are a special kind of travel. And perhaps nowhere is the road trip more sacred than in the U.S. Songs, TV shows, movies, and books have been entirely dedicated to the art of the road trip over the last 100 years or more. And perhaps no single author has helped to create this image of Americans romantically traveling by road with the wind in their hair than John Steinbeck. Now, a very quick literature review. John Steinbeck lived in the U.S. during the 20th century, and he wrote quite a bit during his lifetime. Two of his most famous works, The Grapes of Wrath and Travels with Charlie, are centered entirely on traveling by car, or at least by road, across America. Steinbeck, in fact, is actually the person who helped to cement Route 66 as the mother road, the way to really see the country when you're traveling by car. It was Steinbeck's 1939 book, The Grapes of Wrath, in which the Jode family travels by car from the Dust Bowl in Middle America to sunny California that helped to showcase the growing network of highways and roads that were crisscrossing America. Almost 30 years later, in the 1960s, Steinbeck wrote another book focusing on road travel in the United States, this time called Travels with Charlie. In this book, Steinbeck himself is the one traveling, taking in all the roadside attractions and all the offerings of roadside America with his trusty canine companion, a poodle by the name of Charlie. So a few months back, in December in fact, my partner Mike and I, along with Frida, our very 21st century version of Steinbeck's Charlie, in the form of a hypoallergenic golden doodle, decided to embark on a little road trip of our own, inspired by Steinbeck. We would road trip our way from Toronto, Ontario to Tubac, Arizona, a small town essentially 30 miles north of the Mexican border. By going southwest diagonally across the U.S., we'd have a chance to not only travel along the surviving bits of Route 66, some of which Steinbeck described in The Grapes of Wrath, but we'd also get a chance to parallel bits of Steinbeck's travels with Charlie in the 1960s. So these two books are, of course, literary masterpieces, icons in the American literary canon. But they also serve as a nice way to look at the history of road trip food in America, given when they were written. Oh, you didn't think I forgot about the food, did you? You see, between The Grapes of Wrath in the 1930s and Travels with Charlie in the 1960s, America's road system changed dramatically, and its roadside food culture along with it. 
By the time Travels with Charlie was published in the 1960s, America was enjoying its literal heyday of road travel, a fleshed-out network of highways that took you almost through every nook and cranny of America, complete with giant roadside attractions, drive-through restaurants, and all the other conveniences an enterprising motorist could desire on the open road. By the 1960s, the trend of the American fast food hamburger, fries, and a milkshake was absolutely in full swing. So on this week's show, we'll be highlighting the rise of the fast food or drive through restaurant, one in Michigan and one in Arizona, as we travel diagonally southwest across the U.S., plus a quick stopover in southern New Mexico in between. But on upcoming episodes, don't worry. We'll highlight more stops along our route. About five hours into our trip, already hungry after an international border crossing and navigating a snowy December drive through southern Ontario, our first fast food stop was just outside Flint, Michigan, at an outpost of one of the first fast food restaurants in American history, White Castle. Okay, so I got two of the bacon cheeseburger slider doodads um, and a medium fries to share. I got some onion chips. What? I didn't even know these. Like, I was debating about getting this, the clam chips, and then I was like, Laura, we're in Michigan. Do you really want clam chips? Chips really? in Michigan? Wow. Yeah, see? Good, look. The fries are crinkle cut. Yeah, they are. They're old school. Yeah. Today, White Castle has about, give or take, 350 locations across 13 states. Most of them are in the Midwest and Northeast of the U.S. And obviously, White Castle sells hamburgers. But if you have, well, let's just say Big Mac images floating in your head, you can forget those right now. White Castle's particular kind of hamburgers, more often known as sliders, predate the Big Mac by, depending on who's counting, by about half a century. The first White Castle opened in 1921 in Wichita, Kansas. In the 1920s, hamburgers were not yet a beloved American food. Actually, the food had had a bit of an uneven, you might even say rough start. The famous Delmonico's restaurant in New York had offered it on menus since the 1830s. It had also been a feature at world fairs in the late 19th century. But even still, hamburgers weren't the iconic American food they would later become even by the early 20th century. Americans around that time had actually kind of gone off processed meat to a great extent, worried about what kinds of things ground meat, such as hamburger meat, might be hiding. And if you know Upton Sinclair's famous and nausea-inducing book, The Jungle, which was published in 1901, you'll know what I mean. So, from the first two decades of the 20th century, ground meat, including hamburger meat, had a long way to go to convince the American public on a wide scale that it was something that you could want and eat regularly. White Castle and its founders, Billy Ingram and Walt Anderson, aimed to change this negative perception of hamburgers and hamburger meat in particular. In fact, the very name of the restaurant was chosen specifically to evoke images of cleanliness and reliability. 
Anderson, who had worked as a short order cook in Kansas restaurants before launching White Castle, is actually credited with all kinds of hamburger inventions we now consider classic, like flattening the ground meat on the grill to make a patty, if you will, or offering the burger on a special bun rather than just plain sandwich bread. Anderson also intentionally made his burgers small, almost bite-size. Now you can probably find sliders on countless appetizer menus across the world. And so Anderson envisioned his burgers at White Castle to be something that you would order more than one of. Because folks would regularly order many of these sliders, by the late 1920s, White Castle had even introduced a sack to take your hamburgers with you when you left the restaurant. The phrase at White Castle went, sell them by the sack. So instead of committing to the same-sized Big Mac, to take a random example, White Castle's sliders allowed each customer to order as much as they were hungry for, whether that was 5, 10, 15, or even 30 burgers, as today's Crave case at White Castle allows you to get. These are good. They're not bad as far as onion chips go. Yeah. Mm. The little boxes, the fries came in, have been nicely dovetailed together so they stay warm. That's nice. Um, I was delayed because not one, but two, two Crave cases were being prepared in front of me, which I believe is 30 sliders. And they're both going to the same pair of, I'm going to say grandmothers. Amazing. Yeah, I am. Um, I ordered one of their original sliders and the guy looked at me and said, one? That's right, bucko. One. Uh, what bold, do you think? A bold move, you might say. It's a, uh, it's a thing. Um, I'm also going to have mine too. I got mine fully dressed. As, as did I. Everything on it. Yep. Um, hmm. They're very small. Mm -hmm. I can see how you could order 30. I don't know if I could eat 30. I don't think I could eat 30 by myself. Mm -mm. Hmm. Well, I can see how you might be like, I'm going to need a lot of these. Mm -hmm. They're good. I feel like they're a very kind of throwbacky burger. Like, mm -hmm. this is a very classic. The bun is very fluffy. Yeah, very um, white bread. Like, yeah. Wonder Bread. Yeah. Um, the patty is very thin. Yeah. It's mostly fluffy bread. It's mm -hmm. got a certain deliciousness to it. I can see how this is a, a craving for people. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. And, like, they are in a, a nice small size so that, like, you can get two and not feel like you're pigging out. Yeah, they're, they're pretty much four bites each. Mm -hmm. So White Castle provided our first taste of early American fast food history, but we still had a long way to go to Arizona. And even though we were eating our White Castle in Michigan rather than Kansas, it also provided a glimpse at some of America's first commercial roadside food from the 1920s. So off we traveled, heading more or less southwest. Right around Oklahoma, we joined up with Highway 40, a huge interstate that travels east and west along the U.S. Highway 40 parallels much of what used to be old Route 66, the route that Steinbeck's Jode family traveled as they headed out to California. It's also some of the same route that Steinbeck traveled with his dog Charlie in the 1960s. Let's take a moment here to chat about food in Steinbeck's books. As we've said, 
Steinbeck is all about the road trip. But what does road trip food look like on a Steinbeck journey? Well, for the Jode family, for whom money was exceptionally tight, let's just say there weren't too many stops at White Castle in the book, even if the original sliders only cost five cents a pop. For the Jodes, famously, even a Spam sandwich was something to covet. And their travels largely predated today's American highways, with a fast food outlet or at least beef jerky and soda available at every gas station. But let's move forward a tiny bit. From White Castle's entrance into the fast food world in the 1920s to the golden age of road travel in the 1950s and the 1960s. By then, food or even fast food was but one of the many charms of the age of the car. But it seems Steinbeck, during his own journeys with his dog Charlie, didn't seem to see much of the appeal of roadside food. In Steinbeck's journey across America, he finds roadside food fundamentally the same. Certainly a critique you could still find in today's roadside offerings. As he says in his book, Travels with Charlie. In the eating places along the roads, the food has been clean, tasteless, colorless, and of a complete sameness. It is almost as though the customers had no interest in what they ate, as long as it had no character to embarrass them. According to Steinbeck, apparently White Castle's early emphasis on cleanliness and respectability had actually robbed it of any kind of character and interest. And it's true, hamburgers may have been the overwhelming food option on offer by 1960 across roadside America, and so Steinbeck may have had a point. But I have to say, it's hard to say that there was no character in the 1950s or 1960s roadside food culture. I mean, this was the heyday of roadside attractions, after all. And if one word can sum up those roadside attractions, it's character. You see, to attract the would-be customer to their door, restaurants, whether on rural Route 1 or the famous Route 66, they began to lure customers with large, oversized sculptures and art pieces to advertise their offerings. And it wasn't just restaurants either. Entrepreneurs along America's highways began devising ways of enticing customers to take a break from putting the pedal to the metal, as it were, and stretch their legs. Whether that was grabbing a hamburger and soda from a roadside restaurant, or taking in a roadside attraction like the world's largest ball of twine, or the world's largest prairie dog, or even the world's largest replica of Vincent van Gogh's sunflowers. Which, by the way, that last one is still totally a thing. And, of course, it's in the middle of Kansas. Goodland, Kansas, to be specific. The idea was that you needed something large enough that drivers could see from the passing roads. And restaurants were first to capitalize on outlandish or oversized pieces to signal to motorists that they were there. Sure, you could put up a billboard that said, eat here for great food, but where's the creativity in that? And remember, this was before satellite radio, iPads, in-car entertainment systems. So a lot of times, these roadside outlandish pieces of art were your entertainment, the most interesting thing you might see on your road trip for the last five hours. 
So across the U.S., throughout the 1950s and 1960s, a whole series of restaurant sculptures were born. Wordless ways that enticed potential customers. Signals to not only the parents, but perhaps the kid in the back, that something fun was just over the next highway exit. Some of these statues became iconic symbols of their restaurants, at times even outlasting the restaurant itself. For example, take the statue of Big Boy. Now, if you haven't seen it before, oftentimes these big boy statues are precisely that. The image of a youngish boy, somewhat cartoonish, dressed in red and white overalls, holding a cheeseburger over his head. And these boys are indeed rather large. They can be anywhere from 7 feet tall to 16 feet tall, depending on, well, I, I guess the size of your ambitions in owning a restaurant. The big boy chain was started in California in the mid-1930s and was originally known as Bob's Pantry. The statues advertising Bob's Big Boy, the eventual name of the restaurant, became beloved pieces of roadside Americana. Even though today many big boys outside California have closed, many communities have actually fought to keep these large statues. For example, in Canton, Michigan, the owner of a former large big boy restaurant collected 3,000 signatures in 2004 just to keep his seven-foot-tall version standing. Now, on our trip, Mike, Frida, and I passed many a roadside attraction sign. There was the absolutely necessary stop in Kansas to see the giant Van Gogh flowers, as I mentioned. There was the gigantic Buffalo Bill statue, also interestingly in Kansas. There was the Land Rush Monument in Oklahoma, but nothing could compare to our experience in Hatch in southern New Mexico, the home of the famous Hatch New Mexico chilies. Now, Hatch isn't what you might call a large town. Really, it's just an intersection of two highways. But located directly on top of that intersection is the restaurant known as Sparky's. Sparky's is also a mini-museum for restaurant roadside art from the heyday of highway travel in the 1950s and 1960s. Now, similarly, its menu may look pretty traditional. Hamburgers, fries, lemonades, basically all the things you come to expect from a standard fast food restaurant. But look closely and you'll see something a bit different. Remember, we were in Hatch, New Mexico. So Hatch Chili's were in everything. And I do mean everything. From the cheeseburgers, to the corn chowder, to the lemonade. Yes, the lemonade. Even though it was December, Mike and I and our dog Frida sat outside. Remember, we had just arrived from Canada. Hatch, New Mexico was comparably balmy, even in December. Now, Sparky's, unlike White Castle, is a sit-down restaurant, table service and everything, and it's aimed for those road trippers who clearly are willing to take a bit more time to stretch their legs. And as it turns out, Sparky's isn't just for those traveling through Hatch, it's for the locals too. We must have seen half the town at the restaurant while we were waiting for our food to arrive. All right, so Hatch. Hatch. Here we are in Hatch. Hatch. Sparky's. At the crossroads of the, basically the 26 and the 10? Yeah, 26 and the 10. 26 and the 10. 
uh, waiting on our chili cheeseburger with green chili and our beef rib and our corn chowder. With, with green chili. Ooh. With green chili. With, with lemonade with green chilies in it, mm-hmm. which you can totally taste the green chilies. Also, have you looked across the street? Here. Everything's here. Yogi, Robin Hood, uh-huh. giant piggy bank that's the size of a small car. Yep. A robot that's carrying both uh, ice cream and hamburgers. Yep. Chilies that are covering a KFC. Mike's referring to the Outdoor Museum of Americana Road Signs that Sparky's offers, collected over the years by the owner, Tico Nunn. Yogi Bear, of course, was once the Big boy, as it were, for a fried chicken restaurant, aptly called Yogi Bear Honey Fried Chicken. Robin Hood had a chain of Inn and Sweets. And of course, there were the more recognizable characters like Colonel Sanders, still popular today at KFC. And that robot carrying ice cream and hamburgers? Well, that's Sparky, of course. Yeah, it's a huge place. It's all like boots inside, sort of like road memorabilia. Actually got one of the chilies like up the straw. Oh yeah. Well, they're they're small enough that. Yeah. We are also seriously. I know you mentioned this at the interchange. Yeah, yeah. It's literally at the intersection. The 26 is over there, and the 10 is in the other direction. I believe this is essentially where the 26 starts. Ah. Man, who knew chilies in the lemonade? Yeah. So the signature dish apparently. I can imagine one of their many. It seemed like it was this, the burger, and the barbecue. That's really good. It's, it's, who would have thought you could put spice in lemonade? There's a lot of the sound of diesel. Well, that's a crossroads of America. Yep. Yeah, how's harvest going? Yes, sir. Nice. Good. Good. Hey, guys. Hi. How's it going? Good. Good. Number eight. Got a famous mid-ball with fries. Yep. There you go. Thank you. And a rib with corn. Yeah, perfect. Can I get you guys anything else? I uh, think we're good. Oh, some oh. cutlery, yeah. Are they, is it inside? Yes, it'll yeah. be right next to the Coke machine, okay? Thank All right. you, guys. Thank Enjoy. you. I'm going to have one of these wedges. Do it. They're delicious. I may have stolen them. I know. I'm so sorry. Corn chowder sweet, but good and spicy. Yeah. Well, weirdly, it looks like there may not be a short supply of chilies here. No, it's strange, eh? Burger looks good. It's massive. Covered in chili. <clears throat> Cheese on top. Keep that chili in place. I like that. I like the style. Whew. This has heat to it, the, the chowder. So does this. Ooh. What other things do they have on the menu? Um, they had, like, sort of your, your regular... Barbecue, pulled pork. Um, I don't know if I saw brisket. There's definitely pork. Okay. Um, Focuses the burger combos. Those are first, so you can get a burger, burger with chili, burger with chili and pulled pork. Mm. That sort of deal. Sounds pretty good. 
beef ribs today. Uh, Clearly, today Thursday beef rib day. Yeah. We should remember that. After we left Hatch, a few days and many hundreds of miles later, we were finally in Arizona. And it was in northern Arizona, in the fabulously named town of Sholo, which, if you're wondering, is named after a famous hand of poker, where we stopped at a restaurant that still embodies the mid-century American love of eating in your car. I'm talking, of course, about Sonic. Now, remember when I talked about White Castle's startling innovation of the carry-out bag that they began offering in the 1920s? Well, the novel idea that you could take your food with you when you left a restaurant had morphed by the 1950s into an entirely new way of eating specifically in your car. I'm talking about not only the drive-through restaurant, but also the specific subsection of the drive-in restaurant. Today, of course, drive-through windows can be found at almost every fast food restaurant off the interstate, whether we're talking about McDonald's or Starbucks. But right around the 1930s and the 1940s, as hamburger stands and the very early concepts of fast food were getting going, people started experimenting with different ways that people could enjoy this new fast food environment. Sure, you could take it with you now as you left the restaurant, but what if you just didn't want to leave your car entirely? Well, this was the idea of the original In-N-Out from Baldwin Park, California in the 1940s. Their innovation did away with the idea of you parking your car, going into a restaurant, ordering food, and bringing it back out. Now the idea was you could eat your entire meal from start to finish without ever having to leave your seat. Thus was born the concept of the drive-up restaurant. Park your car, order, and receive your food. The dawn of the age of what was known as the car hop. Delivering to your car window hamburger, fries, a shake, anything you wanted. The image of the car hop is perhaps one of the iconic symbols of roadside Americana in the 1950s and 1960s. You can see it in classic films like Grease, and it was this idea that, of course, as you loved your car, you would want to eat in your car as well. So, pulling into a small driveway, a car hop would roll up almost literally because they were often on skates, take your order, move back to the main restaurant, grab your food and bring it out to you, where you could eat it via a handy tray that connected to your car window. Now, many of these original drive-up restaurants are gone, replaced of course by the more popular drive-through restaurant, where the idea is you grab your food, go, and don't have to worry about eating it on the location. But one chain remains iconic in its drive-up atmosphere as opposed to the drive-through style, Sonic. Now Sonic, like White Castle, was also born in the Midwest. It actually opened its doors as Top Hat Drive-In in in Shawnee, Oklahoma in 1953. Now it also offered the increasingly classic by this point, hamburger and fries. Its other claim to fame was its drive-up service. 
Now, many other drive-up restaurants at this point relied on those famous car hops. Top Hat's claim to fame was its iconic and very futuristic Jet Age intercom system, which allowed customers to order directly to the restaurant from their cars. No waiting on a car hop to come around with a pad and paper. This modern innovation, relying on the modern intercom system, eventually inspired a name change from Top Hat to Sonic, which nicely paralleled the restaurant's slogan, service with the speed of sound. Okay, we're at Sonic in Cholo, Arizona. Um, With the fire truck? (laughs) With the fire fire truck? The fire chief just came in to order. And this is uh, Mike's first experience with a Sonic drive-in, America's drive-in. America's drive-in. All right. Oh, there's my pretzel twist, which it's giant. I didn't even know was a thing they offered. Yeah. Here are tots. Are they like tater tots? Mm-hmm. So what exactly did you order here? I ordered the Sonic Double Cheeseburger, which uh, is surprisingly massive, actually. And it's mostly just bun and meat. Okay. That's a little exciting. bit of American cheese, though. Mm-hmm. And in fully loaded yep. lettuce, tomato, onions, looks like. Yep, pickles and, in there somewhere. Oh, and of course, double meat. Double meat, because double, double meat. cheeseburger. Mm. That's pretty tasty. It's not not busy. No. There's traffic. Mostly in trucks. There's tunes I can hear. Mm-hmm. Some outdoor seating where, understandably, given that it's whatever degree it is, not being used. Yeah. 38, I think. Mm-hmm. They offer a nice, of course, I wonder if this is at all Sonics, but the um, Hatch Green Chili Cheeseburger. Or is that a, uh, you think, regional item? I don't know. You'd think it would have to cover a fair amount of area before they would even bother. Right. After about 3,500 kilometers, or roughly 2,100 miles, Mike, Frida, and I had traversed pretty much the length and breadth of Middle America. We had traveled roughly the same distance, if not longer, as Steinbeck's Jode family from the Grapes of Wrath. Although, true, we hadn't ended up in California. Actually, given Arizona's climate, we had traveled, if anything, to the Dust Bowl rather than away from it. And given Steinbeck's route and travels with Charlie, which more or less took him and his dog around the outer borders of the United States, we hadn't even touched that mileage benchmark. But over the course of about five or so days, we had seen a good swath of the states and had eaten a good amount of regional food. We had had barbecue out of tin shacks and fancy restaurants. Mike had had his first Sonic and White Castle experience, and I had had my first green chili lemonade. Overall, it was a great road trip. We had seen so much of the path of former Route 66, even via the giant Interstate 40 that had replaced it. Although Steinbeck may have insisted, even in 1960, that all roadside food was the same, we had actually seen the opposite. 
barbecue changed slightly from town to town. Hamburgers went from being covered in pulled pork to covered in green chili sauce. Chili itself, for that matter, changed from Cincinnati to Kansas City to Amarillo. And of course, once we got to Arizona, after spending a hot, long month in the Sonoran Desert, we could look forward to a long road trip back to Toronto that was waiting for us. But that, as Steinbeck says, was how travelers came home again. The Feast is written and produced by me, Laura Carlson. Roadside assistance and 24-7 customer support provided by Mike Port. Canine companionship by Frida. We'll be posting some photos from our December road trip through America. You can see all those and more at our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages at feast underscore podcast. That's all for us this week. We'll be back next week with another great story of a meal that made history. I'm Laura Carlson, and this is The Feast.